Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. Chapter 3, I'm sorry. Malachi chapter 3. If you don't know where that is, you can, um, if you have a pew Bible, you can turn to page 851. If you have your own Bible, just go to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then just turn two pages back or so, and you'll find Malachi. It's the book, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 16 to chapter 4, verse 6. Okay, Malachi 3, 13 to chapter 4, verse 6, and then we're going to pray. So hear God's word. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 16. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out playfully and playfully jump like calves in the, from the stall. You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, this is our prayer that your word would dwell richly among us, that, we would, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Not to fear one another, not to fear our workplaces, our co-workers, not to fear our family members, not to fear our fellow church members, not to fear our neighbors, but unite our hearts to fear your name. May we humble ourselves and tremble at your word. Father, only you can change the heart to want your word, to delight in your word, to pay careful attention to your words. So may your spirit open our hearts, soften our hearts, and open our eyes to see the glory, the beauty, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're finishing part two of last week's sermon, so I remind you what we talked about last week. Everyone moves forward in life looking forward to something. That's how you go from week to week, moment to moment. There's something else you're looking forward to, and that's what keeps you going forward. You hope that something good is going to happen out of the mess that you're currently in. 
You're just hoping for the light at the end of the tunnel, aren't you? So you keep going from task to task, event to event, and you just go from that until you die, really. The problem is, for those apart from Christ, at the end of their path is death. You go from task to task, event to event, goal to goal, and then you fall off a cliff into eternity apart from Jesus Christ in the lake of fire. Or you find your final reward. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that's temporary. And then when Christ returns, you'll rise from the dead, and you'll reign with him on the new heavens and the new earth. But we all look forward to something. And Christians look forward to this final resurrection from the dead. But I asked you last week, and I ask you again, are Christians deluded? Are we confused? Are we being tricked by Christian propaganda? Do we really believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and final judge? That we will live on a renewed earth with resurrected bodies? This sounds quite outrageous if you think about it from a non-Christian perspective. You might have believed this all your life or for many years that it's become quite normal to you. But this sounds very strange to outsiders. Are Christians being deceived? We want to live with this true biblical hope of the resurrection from the dead, but sometimes we even wonder if this is really true. Shouldn't we just focus on work and school and making the next dollar and getting healthier and feeling good? Should we really set our mind on things above and not things of this earth? Sometimes it feels like nothing's happening. How many generations of churches, how many of your friends have passed away waiting for the Lord and he hasn't come yet? And yet the very last words of the Bible in Revelation 22 says, Jesus says, I am coming. Do you know what that next word is? Soon. Soon? It's 2019. That was written around 90, 95 AD. What does soon mean? Lord Jesus, you're coming soon? Why not just focus on the things of this world? So we get scared. We might be missing out on the good life as we devote our lives to Christ. What if it's not true? So we talked about last week, the main goal, and it's the main goal of the book of Malachi, and I'll remind you again, the main goal of the book is this. Look forward faithfully to God's final arrival. That's what Malachi is about. Look forward faithfully. It's the last book of the Old Testament in terms of chronology, in terms of being written. It was the last book written, and the, the message is, look forward. It's not over. The story's not over. The Old Testament might be over. God's about to go silent for 400 years, but it's not over. Look forward faithfully to God's final arrival. And how do we look forward faithfully? By testing ourselves. Secondly, by fearing God. And thirdly, by looking to God. We look forward faithfully by testing ourselves, by fearing God, and by looking to God. So we, we covered testing last week. So I'll just say it by way of review, and then we'll move to points two and three this week. How do we look forward faithfully to God's final arrival from the book of Malachi? Number one, we look forward faithfully by testing ourselves. So let me review to, with you very briefly. This was the whole message last week. So we have a whole hour on it. You can listen to that on the podcast or on the CD. But here was last week's message. Five things to test yourselves if you're going to look forward faithfully to God's coming arrival. Number one, do you really feel God's love for you? Do you feel God's love for you? You individually personally? Do you feel God's personal love for you by name? And then do you feel God's love for you as a church family, that God loves your church family as a church? Number two, test number two, are you fulfilling your holy priesthood? Are you fulfilling your holy priesthood? What does that mean? 
It means, are you offering God your leftovers or your best in your time and your finances and your resources? In terms of your teaching, do you take to heart God's word and do you speak God's truth faithfully? Or do you silence yourself or, or speak lies because you're too embarrassed of saying what the Bible really says to people around you? And then thirdly, do you take marriage lightly? They were committing adultery. They were breaking off their marriages for young foreigners who are idolatrous. Do we take marriage and sexual morality and purity lightly? That's the second test. Are you fulfilling your holy priesthood? The third test was, do you trust God's justice? They were saying, oh, God doesn't care about justice. Look at all the injustice in our covenant community. God doesn't care. He just blesses everybody, even those who are unjust. Sometimes even more the unjust than the just. Here I am giving my best to God, so I have less financially than them. And so is God really just? The question for you, the test is, do you trust God's justice and timetable? The fourth test we talked about last week was, do you regularly give yourself to the Lord? Do you give yourself to the Lord? We talked about the tithe, the tenth, where God says, you're robbing God. And they said, how are we robbing you? And God says, because you're not giving me the tenth, that you're, the full tenth of what you said you're going to give me. Now, remember, that's old covenant in the new covenant church. We're not to give God a tenth. We're to give God a hundred percent. That doesn't mean all our money, all that we are. And in that, we give generously. So we give of ourselves. So do you give yourself regularly to Yahweh? Have you taken up your cross, to use Jesus' language? Have you denied yourself, taken up your cross, and followed Jesus? And the fifth test was, do you doubt the goodness of God's commands? Are God's commands good for you or not? So the application last Sunday was test yourself and to test and encourage each other. Let this church be a church where you're not offended when somebody tests you. When someone says, hey, how's your soul doing? And they challenge you about the health of your soul. How dare you challenge me? I'm a Christian. I've been a member of this church for five years. That's true of me as of yesterday. I've been a member of this church for five years as of yesterday. How dare you question me? I'm a pastor. No, let, like, let's have a culture where we can challenge each other and ask each other hard questions to test each other and encourage each other. All right, that's part of looking forward faithfully is to test yourself and examine yourself. God loves his people. He shows himself to us through our testing and self-examination. So look forward faithfully to God's final arrival, first by testing, and now let's jump into this week's message, the last two, okay? Look forward faithfully, number two, by fearing the Lord, by fearing the Lord, or as you might have heard me say, by fearing Yahweh. Look at chapter three, verse 16. This goes from chapter three, verse 16, all the way to chapter four, verse three. This is the second point. You look forward faithfully by fearing the Lord. Look at verse 16. All right, so, well, actually, before you look at verse 16, just look up here again. One more thing. So imagine getting rebuked by God. I mean, over and over and over again. Five tests, five rebukes. You don't, you, you don't trust my love for you. You don't give me, you're not a holy priesthood. You're not giving all of yourself to me. You guys are not, um, you're, you're doubting my goodness and my commands. You're, you're, you're doubting my, my justice. Imagine hearing these rebukes from God. And you didn't see sin in your life, but God's uncovering blind spots in your life. How would you respond? There's two ways to respond. You could receive it or reject it, right? Now look at verse 16. Here's their response, at least some of their response. 316, what's the response when you get rebuked and corrected by God, challenged by God? At that time, now it's going to talk about some group of people, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. 
the Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had higher regard for his name. Okay, this is not speaking about everyone. There's a group of people. They're called those who what? Those who what? Feared the Lord. Have you heard that before? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord. There's, There's two types of people in this building right now. There's two types of people in this world. There's two types of people among those who profess faith in Christ. Those who truly fear the Lord and those who don't. So the call here is to fear the Lord. If you're going to look forward faithfully to the coming of God, the arrival of God, you must fear the Lord. The people here respond, those who fear the Lord, what do they do? Now, it doesn't say that their response was fearing the Lord. What did they do, those who feared the Lord? What did they do? They spoke to who? Spoke to each other. They spoke to one another. When God speaks to you or speaks to your church and he addresses you and rebukes you, if you fear God, what should you do? Talk to each other and say, did you hear what God just said? Our membership role isn't clean. We need to repent and clean up our membership role. Or we're not taking responsibility for a certain member of our church. That person is falling through the crack. God is rebuking us. We need to care for that member. When God rebukes us, let us not sit down in a gathering, hear the preaching, hear God rebuke us, and then get up and then leave this gathering and not talk about it. Who are the people who don't talk about what God says? Those who don't what? They don't fear God. If you fear God, when God addresses you, you don't stop thinking about it when God's done speaking. You speak to each other. We got to do something about this. This is a problem. James has a word for this. Those who fear God. They're not hearers only. They're also what? Doers. But there are hearers only, right? Those who hear God but don't fear God. And so when they, the word goes in one ear and out the other, they don't talk about it. Why do I, as one of your pastors, sort of force you, sort of force you, to speak to each other one minute after the sermon? I didn't have this biblical justification, but now that I have it, I might as well use it, right? (laughs) When you hear God speak, and he's done speaking, speak to each other. This is what God is saying to me. This is what God's saying to us. We need to do something about this, because we fear God. So they speak to one another, and they don't just let it go. So they speak to one another in their response to God. So let's, let's think here. I want to spend some time here, a few minutes here, an extended amount of time, to think about what does it mean to fear the Lord? Because that's a big theme in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean to fear the Lord? I just Googled, Googled, on my Bible, um, my Bible program, I just looked up fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, just got all the verses out. And I just read all of them, and I just put characteristics. So I'm not going to tell you where they're from. I mean, you can get the list from me later if you want. Let me just tell you the characteristics about fearing God, okay? What are some characteristics? What does it mean to fear God? Here's some descriptions. Those who fear the Lord obey the Lord. It's a disposition of their lives. Fearing the Lord is parallel to turning from evil. It is the cause of turning from evil. Fearing the Lord leads to life. Fearing the Lord is something that can be taught or explained to people, as I'm trying to explain to you what it is right now. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Fearing the Lord is following God's instructions. Fearing the Lord is a love for wisdom, a not despising of wisdom, a treasuring of wisdom. A fear of the Lord is is knowing God personally because wisdom comes from God and, and God's word comes from God. So it's not just about God's words. It's about God himself. It's someone who knows and loves God. Fearing the Lord is turning away from the snare of death. Fearing the Lord in two, two places in the Old Testament is humility. 
It's defined as humility. Fearing the Lord is a response to some revelation from God leading to listening more, desiring more, delighting in God's word more, and then heeding that revelation, obeying that revelation. So what does it look like? Let me give you two examples, three examples of what it looks like. There's three examples, there's more examples in the Bible, but let me give you three examples of what it looks like. Do you remember when Moses got the Ten Commandments? Where was he? On Mount what? Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's also called Mount Horeb. In Mount, on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, Moses is there, and actually, before God, Moses goes up, God addresses all of the covenant community, all of Israel, one million of them. They gather around the mountain, don't touch the mountain, but gather around the mountain, and then God speaks to the whole people. And this is what they say in response. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse um, 24. They, they, um, the leaders approached, the leaders approached, um, Moses, and they said, look, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice from fire. Today we have seen that God speaks with a person, yet he still lives. But now, why should we die? They're scared now. Here's the fear of the Lord. This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For who out of all mankind has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fire as we have and lived? So here's what they tell Moses. Go near and listen to everything the Lord our God says. Then you can tell us everything the Lord, the Lord our God tells you, and we will listen and obey. And here, listen to this verse, verse 28. The Lord heard your words. Moses is talking to the people. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. He said to me, I have heard the words that these people have spoken to you. Everything they have said is right. And here's, here, I love this. Here's a, heart, here's a little glimpse into the heart of God. You can, hear, you can feel God's desire here. If only they had such a heart to fear me and keep all my commands always so that they and their children would prosper forever. See God's desire here? They're trembling at God, right? God spoke to them from a mountain. There's fire, there's earthquakes. God spoke and they're scared, but they want to hear God. Moses, you talk and, and we'll listen to everything you say and we'll obey it. And God's like, oh, they're just so right. If only they would always fear me. If only it wouldn't be a one-time thing where they see fire and so they're freaked out for a moment. But if only they would always fear me and listen to my words. You get a, a picture of what it means to fear God? What about Abraham? Abraham is taking his son, Isaac. He gets this strange command. Isaac is going to be your son of promise, not Ishmael. Through Isaac, you'll have the blessing. Then God says to Abraham, 10 or 12 years later, take your son Isaac and kill him. Sacrifice him on the altar. This is Genesis 22. Take your son, the son you love, and sacrifice him to me on the altar. And the Bible doesn't say anything about Abraham's response. The next day, Abraham wakes up and he goes, takes his son, and to make a long story short, he puts him on the altar and he's about to kill his son. And the, the feel you get of Genesis 22 is that Abraham is not even hesitating. He's just going to do it. So he gets the knife, he raises it up, his son is on the altar, tied up. Abraham's about to kill his son and sacrifice him to Yahweh, to God. And right when he's about to do it, an angel says, stop. And then he says in Genesis 22, 12, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. How do you know? Now I know you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. What is fearing God? It's going to the point that when God tells you to do something, you're going to do it. Without hesitation. 
Now, Abraham didn't, he knew that God, it says later, Hebrews tells us, Abraham knew God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. Because what did God say? Not Ishmael, but through whom will, will the blessing come? Through whom? Not Ishmael, but Isaac. So if God, so God, if you're telling me Isaac is going to have the blessing, my wife gave birth at 90 years old. That's a miracle, right? I got my wife pregnant and I was 99 years old. That's a miracle. And now you're going to say that this is going to be the one who's going to be the promise? Now you want me to kill this boy? Sure, I'll kill him. I mean, we we're practically dead when we gave birth to him. If, if you're going to give, give us life that way, and I kill him, it's on you to raise him from the dead because you're the one who said it's him, right? So, so Abraham doesn't hesitate because he fears the Lord. God, this is your promise. This is your responsibility to raise him from the dead if I kill him. I'm killing him. This is done. Consider it done. No hesitation because he fears God. One more example. Cornelius. He wasn't a Christian, but it says that he fears God. So he'd be praying every day and seeking God, praying to God he didn't know. And then he gets a vision from God saying, go send for the apostle Peter to come and preach the gospel to you. And then Cornelius gets saved. But notice this, before he's even saved, he's fearing God. And that's why God met him and sent a messenger to him to give him the gospel. Because he feared God. So what is fearing God? A fearing God is a seeking God, seeking his truth, seeking him. And then being willing when he gives us himself and he gives us his instruction that we obey without hesitation. So what is the core of fearing God? Let me quote you Isaiah 50 verse 10. It says this, who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Fearing God is listening to God with trembling. Let me give you fearing God in New Testament terms. It doesn't have the phrase fearing God. I'm going to read to you a very familiar passage. Do you want to know if you fear God? Listen to this passage, and this is a description of the church Christians as to whether they fear God. James 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen or hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's fearing God. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, Ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Are you quick to listen and receive God's word and get rid of sin? Or do you want God's word and sin at the same time and somehow you're going to figure out the way to get them all, keep them both together and still be faithful? You're not going to fear God if you do that. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. He doesn't talk about God's word. He doesn't try to obey God's word. He doesn't talk to his covenant community to help them obey God's word. He forgets. In one ear and out the other. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of, a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. That is someone who fears the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? Let me give you my short definition of the fear of the Lord. Here's my short definition. The fear of the Lord is a specific reverence, a specific reverence for who God is that causes one to heed God's word. Let me say it one more time. The fear of the Lord is a specific reverence for who God is that causes one to heed what God says. That one sounds better, right? I'll say it that way one more time. Fear of the Lord is a specific reverence for who God is that causes you to heed what God says. That's how you know if you're fearing God. 
Do you revere God for who he is? So much so that you heed and obey what he says? So when I think about church members, when I think about myself, when I look for other Christians, who are those who really fear the Lord? You want, let me, let me just, I just wrote down some things I look for. And this is just my own description, but maybe it'll help you, help you, maybe not. If not, let's just move on after this. But I look for Christians who have a little bit of crazy in them. You know what I mean by that? They have a, they have a little bit of crazy in them. I mean, isn't it crazy that Abraham got the word to kill his son, and then he just doesn't hesitate and does it? That's the fear of God. There's a, it's not technically crazy. It's actually sanity, but it looks crazy from the outside. A little bit of crazy in somebody. They're a little, they're, they're extremists. They're down for whatever. They're willing to do any, anything for the one they fear, even in the face of danger. It's extreme loyalty and commitment. And if it's to the wrong person, it's extreme loyalty to a fault. But with God, it's never too fault. You can never be too loyal to God. You can never be too committed to God. You can never be too extreme for God. You can never be too crazy for God. You can't be. It's impossible. Our main problem in our lives, the main problem in our church and in churches, is not the challenge of false teaching. The main problem in your life is not the world tempting you. The main problem in your life is not the broken situation around you. The main problem in your life is not the church family that you have. The main problem in our lives is a heart problem. We don't fear God. We sort of fear God. And to sort of fear God is to not fear God. Because you don't, there is one, there's always one person or thing in your life every moment that you don't sort of fear. There's one thing in your life that you will fear to the extreme. It could be your job. It could be your friends. It could be a family. It could be your church. Everyone fears something to the extreme. And when you sort of fear God, you actually fear someone or something else more. And that's our problem. It's a heart problem. It's not if I could just have more money, then, then, then I would be faithful to God. If I could just have more time, then I'd be faithful to God. No, 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 no. That's wrong. Do you fear God? That's the question. In their fear, they hear God's word, they speak to one another about it, they speak about what they hear, and they seek to obey. All right. But let's continue on here with this fearing God. Let's notice what else. So, so not only do they speak to one another, but look at verse 16 again. Who notices? The Lord notices. And then not only does the Lord notice, what does he do? A book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and had a high regard for his name. Not only does God notice those who fear God, what does he do? Their names are written where? In a book. Their names are written in a book. This is the theme in the Bible, right? The book of life. Churches have membership roles. It's not the book of life, but we write down the names of those who fear the Lord. That's why we baptize those who fear the Lord, right? We take communion with those who fear the Lord. We have a membership. And our directory, when I look at our membership directory, this is supposed to be a directory of 89 members who fear the Lord. These are 89 people who should be fearing the Lord. And the Lord takes notice of those who fear him. He writes their name down in a book, and he responds, and he takes note of them. He, and then read on in verse 17. They will be what? They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. So God says, they're mine. I will be their God, and they will be mine. People, I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on the son 
on his son who serves him. Good fathers have compassion on their needy children, don't they? They have compassion on their needy children. They care. Their heart yearns and, and, and bleeds for their children. And the father here says he has compassion on those who fear him. So God cares for them. He takes note of them. And then God distinguishes them. Look at verse 18. He distinguishes them. He makes them distinct. So you will again see the difference. There's the distinction. You'll see the distinction, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. To use earlier verses, the one who fears God and the one who sort of fears God. God makes a distinction. There's a difference. And he says, you will see the difference on that final day. Because judgment day, God will make a difference. In Matthew 25, he separates the sheep from the what? From the goats. And you will see the difference. You will see clearly identified on that final day, those who have feared the Lord, the God of promise, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who have only sort of feared the Lord, and those who have never even professed to fear the Lord. Why will God do this? Why will God make this distinction? Why will God have compassion? Why? He tells us why in, verse, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Why? For, why is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Yes or no? Is it going to? Yes. Why? Why is it going to happen? How do you know it's going to happen? Why do you believe that it's going to happen? Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Let's look at it. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become what? Stubble. They'll burn up. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. That's one group. The wicked. The ones who are committed to wickedness, the arrogant. On the other side, verse 2, but for you who fear my name, you who are listening and trembling at my word, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I'm preparing, says the Lord of armies. What is this saying? This is saying that this is talking, when are we going to jump around playfully like calves from the stall? What is this? What is, it's a short one verse imagery. What does that have the imagery of? When, when, when you think of the Bible, what, when is this going to be fulfilled? The new earth? The new creation? There's going to be this excitement where we are going to, the wicked will be burned, consumed like fire, like stubble. The, the ones who fear God, the righteous, they are going to be jumping around with all of this boundless energy. Now, as we get older, we have less and less energy, right? But all of us who fear God will be, will be jumping and bouncing around like the kids today, right? They'll be jumping and bouncing around with playful energy. When is this going to happen? Those who fear my name, not only will they, they'll have healing, so they'll have, they'll have they'll, any, any sickness, any decay, any aging, they will be healed. They'll be jumping around like playful, like, like you know, like, um, what does it say? Like, like a calf, like a calf from the stall. Not only that, look at verse 3. What else are they going to do? This is interesting. They will also what? Trample the who? Trample the wicked. They'll trample the wicked. They will reign on the earth. And they will trample the wicked. They will rule over them. When I think of trampling, you think of someone under your feet, right? It says under the soles of your feet, doesn't it? 
Do you, any verse in the Bible come to your mind about something under someone's foot and being crushed, trampled? Who? Satan, the serpent, in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. But who's going to be at hostility? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So the Bible's story is really the story of the wicked and the righteous, those who fear the Lord and those who don't. And there will always be hostility between them. But at the end of the day, who's going to win? The, the Lord Jesus and those who are with him, those who fear him, and then they will crush and trample on the wicked. That's going to happen. God will make the distinction and the difference. So what should we do now in the meantime? We should fear the Lord, right? That's the difference. Those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord. So do you fear God? Test yourselves. Check yourselves. God is calling you to fear him. Here's a, here's, let me give you a parable that Jesus said in Matthew 21. Here's a five-verse parable to see if you fear the Lord. Jesus says, what do you think? A man, has had, a man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But he later changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other son and said the same thing to him. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which two did his father's will? The one who said no and went or the one who said he would do it and didn't go? Which one? A or B, the first one or second one? A, right, the first one. The first one did it. And Jesus says, they said to him the first. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, you didn't even change your minds and believe him. That's what fearing God is. It's changing your mind. Does God change your mind when you hear his word? Do you, do you get rerouted? You know, like airplanes that fly and airplanes, they constantly are, with the GPS, they're constantly rerouting just a little bit. So they're flying from LA to New York and, and they constantly have to check their course and constantly recorrect their route over and over and over again until they get to, it's not like this straight flight with no course correction. They're constantly recalibrating just a little bit here, a little bit there to make sure they get to their destination. Those who fear the Lord are constantly hearing God's word. And every time they hear God's word, every Sunday, every time they do their devotions, they, they recalibrate. There's a little bit, a little shift. They, they sing another song to one another and they shift and they shift and they shift. And they, they keep doing that because even if they don't obey God initially, they obey God eventually. And that's the characteristic of those who fear the Lord. Christian, I call you to hear the word of the Lord and fear the Lord of the word. Hear the word of the Lord and fear the Lord of the word. Tremble at God's word. Church family, let us never tire of hearing God's word together. Let us gather together and hear God's word as a church family. You could hear this message on CD. You can watch it. You can watch the video as our brother Justin faithfully posts them. There's some good use to that. But there is nothing, there's nothing in your life like what you do right now to gather with your church family where everyone's taking time out of their week to hear God's word together. It's just a different way of hearing God's word when you're doing it together, live. So I want to encourage you, brothers to, and sisters, to keep hearing God's word and to keep doing this together. And then speak to one another about the Lord and tremble before his word together. Don't only share for the one minute after the sermon. That's just a priming of the pump. I'm trying to train you. We're trying to train each other to talk about God's word all the time. Not just once, not just for one minute after the sermon, but all the time. And then as a church family, let us 
I should say let us. We're already doing it. Let us keep a list of those who publicly commit to fearing the Lord. Let us keep a list of those who are baptized, who are taking communion, and who are committing to hold each other responsible for each other's profession of faith in Christ and our practice of Christian discipleship. What do we call that? We call that a membership directory. Let us, as a church family, know who's here, care for those who are here, and make sure that this is accurately reflecting those who are fearing God together in this local church. If you're not a Christian, God is speaking to you, and he's challenging you. Will you be quick to hear God, or will you continually be quick to hear somebody else? You might say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not quick to hear anybody. I, I, I examine everybody. There's no one I'm quick to hear. I just want to challenge you. If you're not a Christian, you know who you're quick to hear. If you're saying, I don't, I'm not quick to hear anybody. I test everybody. I'll say, no, that's not true, number one. You know who you're quick to hear? Yourself. Should you question yourself? Should you hesitate to trust yourself and trust God? Or should you hesitate to trust God and then trust yourself instead? Where should the hesitation be? Where should the quickness of hearing be? In your own voice, in your head? Or in God's voice, in the Bible? Everyone here, everyone in the world is quick to hear somebody. That's not a problem. That's not a debate. I mean, it could be a debate, but that's, that's just settled. The, the question is, who are you quick to hear? And who are you slow to hear? Jesus invites you to hear him and be part of his people. So look forward faithfully to God's final arrival by testing yourself, by, by fearing God. And lastly, look forward faithfully, these last three verses, by looking to God. Look at verses four through six. Last three verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses four through six. He's going to tell us to look back and look forward. He's going to tell them to look back and look forward. Look at verse four. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb, that's at Mount Sinai, for all Israel. So remember, remember is not looking forward, but looking what? Looking back. So look back. He's telling the people there, Malachi's telling his original hearers, remember the Israelic covenant. Remember Mount Horeb? Remember the passage that I just read to you that we were all scared to hear God's word? Remember that, that God made a covenant to us. He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would make them a great nation and the blessing of the whole world would come through them. And then, through Moses to Israel, he made us the great nation. We passed through the Red Sea, which is sort of like baptism, Paul says. We passed through the Red Sea. We were declared his people, and we entered into a covenant with him at Horeb. So remember, remember the past. Remember that covenant. Now, if they remember that covenant, they'd be discouraged because they're hearing the message in 450 B.C. The message they got from Moses is about 1,000 years before in 1444 B.C. or somewhere around there. So you had about 1,000 years, and Israel has gone through some ups and downs in those 1,000 years, right? And now they're here at the end of the Old Testament. They got a dinky little community, a dinky little temple, nothing impressive about them, and they're trying to remember God's promises. That could get discouraging. You had this great kingdom with, with Solomon, the greatest of all kings, in terms of wealth and prosperity and wisdom, and now you're down to this poor-looking community. And so God says, hold on, look back. Because not only did Moses give you that covenant, listen to Deuteronomy 30. You could turn there if you like. Deuteronomy 30, I'm going to read to you a good chunk of it, verses 1 through 10. Turn to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. God is saying, remember what I told you guys through Moses. Not only the old Israelite covenant, but remember what I said even with that covenant. 
Look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. It says this. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you, and they happen by 450, by Malachi's time, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you in exile, and you and your children return to the Lord your God. There's repentance. And obey him with all your heart and all your soul by doing everything I'm commanding you today. There's fearing God. Then he will restore your fortunes. He will have compassion on you and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your, even if your exiles are at the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. Verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed. And that's where they are now in Malachi's time. And you will take possession of it. They don't have possession of it yet during Malachi's time. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your fathers, more than Solomon's day. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants. And you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. Then you will again obey him and follow all his commands I'm commanding you today. The Lord your God will make you prosper abundantly in all the work of your hands, your offspring and the offspring of your livestock and the produce of your land. Indeed, the Lord will again delight in your prosperity by keeping his commands I'm sorry, prosperity, as he delighted in that of your fathers when you obey the Lord your God by keeping his commands and statutes that are written in the book of the law and return to him with all your heart and all your soul. What did God promise Malachi's people a thousand years before? You're going to break the covenant. You're going to get kicked out of land. Then I'm going to bring you back. And then I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to change your heart. You're going to obey me and you're going to prosper. So Malachi's community is discouraged. I mean, you can look around at a church like this. I mean, I'm not discouraged, but you might look around in this church and say, look at all these empty seats. This is discouraging. And if you're discouraged, what is God saying? Don't worry. Heaven will be filled. Not one of them will be missing. Every seat will be occupied. And they'll all get there. Don't worry about that. Look back at my promise that even though I cursed you and exiled you, I will bring you back to the land and then I will change your hearts. I will change your hearts to want to obey me. Now, when did this happen? When did, when did God, pro, didn't God promise, not in the old Israelite covenant, but in the new Israelite covenant that he would change their hearts? Remember Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36? I'll write my law in their hearts. I'll forgive them of their sins. They're all going to know me. I'm going to take my spirit and put my spirit in them. I'm going to take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That's the new covenant. That's a new promise. That's the old promise. That's a Deuteronomy 30 promise. It was prophesied in the old covenant that a new covenant would come where God would cause their hearts to follow him. And when did this new covenant happen? We're going to talk about it tonight in the Lord's Supper where Jesus holds up a cup and he says, this cup is the what? I went like this because we had small cups, but really Christ had a bigger cup. So <laughs> correct that here. Christ took the cup and said, this cup is the what? Is the new covenant in my blood. How does the new covenant come? How does heart change come? How does forgiveness come? It doesn't come for free. What does Christ have to do? He has to shed his blood. He has to die on the cross for sinners. And he would. He would come down to earth. The son of God, God the son, would become a man, born of the Virgin Mary, named Jesus by Joseph, and he would live the life that we should have lived. He would die on the cross for sinners and shed his blood. That side would be pierced. Water and blood gushing from the side to give the double cure. The new covenant 
That Christ would shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, for new hearts, for circumcised hearts, for the law written on your hearts, for forgiveness of your sins, for God to be your God and for you to be his people. All of those who would come to Christ would experience this promise. And if you're a Christian today, you experience this promise. So look back to the Deuteronomic prophecy. That's what he was telling Malachi's people. For us, we, for them, they, we're looking back to Jesus on the cross. They're looking forward to Jesus on the cross. But I'm telling you, BBC, look back to the cross. If you're going to wait for, faithfully as you look forward to Christ's coming, to the arrival of God, you need to keep looking back to the cross again and again and again, which is why Christ says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. This is why we take the Lord's Supper every single Sunday at this church. Because we don't want to forget the cross. We want to remember the cross. So we take it Sunday mornings, we take it Sunday nights. But every Sunday it's going to happen. Sunday morning, Sunday night rotation. But we will remember. So look back and remember. But don't only look back. Go back to Deuteronomy, or Malachi chapter 4, last part here. Don't just look back. Look what? Malachi 4 verse 5. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So don't, look just, don't just look back. Um, exiled community, look what? Look forward. Look forward. And so for Malachi's here, look forward to who? Who's coming? What's his name? Elijah. Now, does someone literally named Elijah come? No. Now, there's a prophecy. Well, there's a prophetic tradition of waiting for Elijah. Why is it always Elijah that they're waiting for? You know Why? How did Elijah end his life? Anyone know? He's one of the two people who didn't die, right? He was taken. He was taken in a fiery whirlwind in a chariot. Either beside the chariot or in the chariot, or actually it says a fiery chariot came and then a whirlwind took him up or something like that. But there was always this, so from there there's this tradition, where's Elijah? He must be coming back at some point. And so here, Malachi picks up on that and says, Elijah's coming. And Elijah's going to come right before the day of the Lord. Now, this was fulfilled, not in a literal Elijah, but in who? Ross read it earlier from Luke chapter 1. Who is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah? John the what? John the Baptist. Not John the Southern Baptist, right? And not John the Baptist denomination. John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer, the one who would baptize people. And so it's fulfilled in John. The day of the Lord would come, and it was coming in the future for them. What about us? Will, will, um, it says here that the great and terrible day of the Lord will come and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Have we turned our hearts to the fathers and have the fathers, has God turned our hearts to the fathers and the fathers to the children? Have God, has God turned our hearts? If you've tested yourself, if you're testing yourself, if you're fearing God and you're looking to God for his coming, then you will be ready for the, what it, what it says here in verse five, four, 5, the great and terrible day of the Lord. So I want to ask you guys this pro- prophetic question. You guys like prophecy. Has the great and terrible day of the Lord come? Yes or no? The great and terrible day of the Lord, let me describe it a little bit. The great and terrible day of the Lord in the minor prophets, it's when the moon turns to blood and the sun is darkened like Joel prophesied. That would happen on the day of the Lord. This final judgment, this final restoration, people jumping like calves from the stall. God's people rising with healing in their wings, going out playfully and trampling the wicked. 
this great and terrible day of the Lord? Has it happened yet? Yes or no? How many of you say no? Raise your hand because I hear some no. So let's start with no. How many of you say yes? One yes, two yeses. How many? Okay, so most of you say no. Some of you say yes. Some of you refuse to be wrong. And so therefore you are wrong because you didn't raise your hand for either of the answers. So you're wrong. So it didn't work. But has the, has the great and terrible day of the Lord come? Answer, yes. It has come. Wait, you're saying, wait. The terrible day of the Lord, when the moon is turned to blood and the sun is darkened and the earth is shaking? That's what Joel prophesied. That happened? Did that happen? Peter said in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel and says, it happened. Peter, when did it happen? In Acts 2, 19 and 24, when did it happen, Peter? When, when did the earth shake? When did darkness cover the land? When was the great and terrible day where God exercised and exhausted his judgment, his infinite eternal wrath? On the cross. On the cross. When Christ died on the cross, the earth shook, didn't it? Wasn't, wasn't Christ hanging in darkness? And in it, Peter says, now you're saying, well, PJ, that's your interpretation. I'm telling you, the apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that the Joel 2 prophecy of the terrible day of the Lord came on the cross. And so I was reading the Bible with, with one of my Christian friends on this passage, and he said, but, what, but he's like, but that's not the most terrible day of the Lord. And I said, it is. There's actually no day more terrible than that day. There is no 24-hour period. There's no period of time. There's no three-hour period of time more terrible than that three-hour period. Because if you think about it, how long is someone burning in hell? And I say that with trembling, but I just need to say it because it's true. How long is someone burning in the lake of fire? How long will they burn? Eternally. How long will it take for them to have God's wrath exhausted on them? It'll take forever. For, for one person, right? For each person. But here, when Christ is on the cross, whatever, if you could take that eternal amount of suffering for each person, and you take it for every Christian who's ever going to trust in Christ, and you put all of that on Jesus for three hours hanging in darkness, you're going to have someone, you're going to have the Son of Man cry out something like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going to pray like crazy, let this cup pass from me. Because it is the most, it is the greatest and most terrible day that has ever and will ever happen in the universe, in all of history. There is no more terrible day than Good Friday. When the wrath of God was exhausted for PJ's sins and David's sins and Carrie's sins and John's sins and Heber's sins and Peter's sins and Jim's sins. I mean, on that day, everyone who would ever be united to Christ, God would shake the ground, cover that part of the earth and cover the Son of God in darkness and pour out his wrath for your sins. And Peter says, that day came when Christ died on the cross. Jesus drank the cup that he pleaded would be passed for him. And the good news is, at the end of that three hours, Christ said, it is finished. It's over. For you, for me, for everyone who's in Christ, that great and terrible day is not great and terrible for us. Our great and terrible day is done. It's only joy and playful jumping, like young calves jumping out of a stall. There is no great and terrible day for us anymore. That's done. Praise God. 
that he rose again on the third day. This is why we know Christianity is true, because Jesus actually lived on this earth historically. You can, you can make that claim. Jesus Christ actually died on a cross, and his body is actually missing. The only historical explanation for it that's reasonable is that Christ must have rose from the dead. And so are we crazy to believe that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead in the end? That there is going to be a final judgment and that we're going to rise from the dead and rule on a, on a new earth? Is it crazy that we reorient our lives and our Sundays to put Christ first? Is that crazy? It's reasonable. It's the only thing that makes sense in this world, right? It's the only thing that makes sense if this is true. And it is true. So has the great and terrible day of the Lord came? Answer, yes. I ask again, has the great and terrible day of the Lord come? Answer, yes. And then I'll say also, answer, no. It's also no. And in what sense is it no? Has the final judgment come where people are finally thrown into the lake of fire? Are we, are we all healed and jumping around, bursting like young calves around this earth, this res renewed earth? Is that where we are? No. Like, I got aches and pains. I'm still recovering from a knee surgery, you know? Like, I'm not healed completely. Like, and, and I'm only getting older and, and, and we're, we're, our bodies are decaying. We're not healing yet, but we will. So has the, has the great and terrible day of the Lord come? Yes, in one sense, but also no in another sense. It's begun, but it will finally come when Christ returns, when God comes. And in the, so, so when God comes, it will, it will come back. But So what do we do in the meantime? We pray and work for verse 6, that God would turn the hearts of people. Turn your hearts and the hearts of your loved ones towards Jesus and towards one another. If you're not a Christian... The great and terrible day for you is not over, it's coming. If you are apart from Jesus, your great and terrible day is not over. It is not finished for you. And actually, I want to say with great sadness and sorrow, it will never be over for you. It will never be over for you. The great and terrible day will start when you're thrown into the lake of fire. In that sense, it's over, that day. But you will face God's wrath for eternity. You'll be crushed in everlasting punishment. So if you're not a Christian, let me plead with you. Understand this. God made you and is holy. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you because you're a sinner who deserves God's wrath. Christ died for sinners and he rose from the dead. If you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, then you will be covered with that blood. You will be forgiven. You will be atoned for. You will be made one of his children. But if you do not repent from your sins and trust in Jesus then you are not covered in that blood. You will cut, your blood will be on your hands, and on the great and terrible day, judgment will come. But the good news is you don't have to face that day. The day can be over for you. So I plead with you, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Christian, look back. Look back to the cross and remember God's new Israelic covenant and what Christ did with his blood. Remember God's promise. He will come. And then look forward. He's coming again. Church family, this is becoming more and more increasing in our church, and I just want to increase it even more. Let's let this word come out of our mouths more and more in prayer and in our conversation. The word Maranatha. What's that? What does that mean, Maranatha? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. Our Lord, come. Let that word be on our lips weekly, daily. So what's the main goal? Look forward faithfully to God's final arrival by testing yourself, by fearing God, and by looking to God. Here's my call to action for you, my, my main call to you as I close. As you look forward to God, to Christ's final, full 
arrival, here's my challenge to you, a one-week challenge. Pray to God every day this week that Jesus would come. Do it for seven days. Every day this week, I'm assuming most of you pray for your food. Maybe that's an easy way to do it. Before you pray for your food or as you're praying for your food, just pray for Jesus to come and look forward faithfully to his coming. If you don't look forward faithfully to his coming, you'll get stuck in thinking and looking at this world and your life will unravel from self-centeredness and short-sightedness. You won't fear God. You'll complain to God and misunderstand God's design for your trials. And you may even be unpleasantly surprised at his coming. But if you look forward faithfully to Christ's return, you will grow in Christ-centeredness. Your future will be sweet and hopeful rather than terrifying. And you will live with this hope now. So let us look forward faithfully to God's final arrival. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute to pray on your own, and then I will close us in prayer. Father, thank you that we can hear your word and sit together as a church family for one full minute in silence. We don't get time like this during our week. Our lives are too busy. Often it's our fault. But it's good for us to sit silently together. We pray that we would look forward faithfully to your arrival. Help us to test ourselves to fear you and tremble at your word and to look to you, to look back at the cross and the new covenant promise to look forward to Christ's return. Maranatha, come, Lord, come. In Jesus' name, amen.